The Right Hook Podcast. With the Mitsubishi Outlander Business, the two-seater commercial SUV with over 2,000 litres of cargo space, two-ton towing capacity and legendary four-wheel drive technology. MitsubishiMotors.ie First, though, as we just heard there from Jared Tracy, and I'm sure most of the country were watching it uh, this afternoon, gold medal favourite Katie Taylor has gone out at the quarterfinal stage of the Rio Olympics after losing in a split decision to Miro Potkinen. Uh, speaking afterwards, a devastated Katie, Katie, and it's the only word to use to describe her, had said the loss was extremely hard to take. I was very disappointed in that. It's been a very, very tough year. Um, suffered a, you know, a lot of losses this year, and it's very, very, very hard to take. But the Olympics is a dream for me, and um, I, you know, I came in here, you know, prepared very well. I gave it my best shot, and it just didn't happen. Sometimes the plans, you know, having your heart aren't the same as God's plans. But I just have to thank everyone for all the support, the prayers. I'm so humbled by that, and. Um, you know, God, God is so great. It's such a privilege and an honour to be here and I just have to thank everyone for the support. Now, absolutely devastation. You can hear it in her voice. It's, you know, very, very emotional for her and indeed for most of the country who were cheering her on. Um, thousands again turned out, as they did during London 2012, to Katie's hometown of Bray to watch it all on a big screen. Uh, they are telling News Talk this evening they are still very proud of her. Everyone's disappointed, but I'm sure she'll be back. Do you think so? Do you think she'll be able to bounce back? I think back? she will, yeah. She's a great athlete and she's a great inspiration for everyone. I didn't think she looked too comfortable in there, to be honest. I don't know what that was about, but uh, hopefully she'll come back. I mean, at the end of the day, she has to do what's best for her. So we'd all love to see her come back. She's a star in Bray anyway, and she will continue to be a star in Bray. For all of us. Now straight to Rio and uh, our man Richie McCormick. Richie, I believe you're in transit, but hopefully uh, we will be able to talk to each other for a few minutes at least. Uh, devastation really is the only word to use, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. And she found that uh, defeat very, very difficult to take. As you heard there in the clip, Tara, she was talking about how she really should be beating these girls and that she felt, uh, speaking afterwards, that she prepared well. She said she'd come over later than the rest of the fighters just to minimise that long wait around. And it was a long wait for her. She's the last of the Irish boxers to take to the ring over here in Rio. Uh, so she felt that she was and had prepared adequately for the fight, had the beatings of Pockenham out there in the ring. And she felt sure that she'd won the fight as well because uh, she said save for the second round, which she felt the pocket had taken. She'd done enough to take the fight. She thought she'd cleanly taken all three rounds. Ultimately, it is that second round that cost her because all three judges went 10-9 in favour of the Finn. Mm. Uh, whereas for the other three rounds, we had two to one decisions in favour of Katie. But ultimately, uh, the scorecards ended up so level that one of the judges ended up having to make a judgment call on it. One of the judges went 39-37 uh, in favour of Taylor. Uh, the other one went 39-37 in favour of Pockenham. And the judge in the middle, the Ecuadorian, 38-38, and had to make a judgment call. And ultimately, it came down on the side of the fin. And, and what did you think yourself as you were watching the fight? I mean, were you fearful of that? It, it, it you know, it, it didn't... If you think back to, to Rio, or sorry, if you think back to London in 2012, it was, it was just so much more definitive... Um, it was definitive up until the final to be honest with you Tara a lot of people kind of forget that that final was actually pretty close and that Katie did well to come away with that from that one uh, with a gold medal so it wasn't as easy in 2012 as a lot of people kind of maybe rose to the glasses remember this time around it was expected that a semi-final position was probably going to be a decent achievement for Katie it's a stronger field this time around you have to remember and there are boxes in there that she's lost to already um, Pockenham wasn't one of them Pockenham was somebody who sh- uh, she'd beaten five times already yeah. and the Finn said afterwards in her in her pe- uh, press conference she was speaking to reporters who translated thankfully on her behalf who said that uh, she'd lost to Katie five times and that was her motivation for beating her this time round mm-hmm. this is a fighter who only began boxing at 26 uh, had two kids by the time she'd started boxing and thought that this is now or never she, now, she narrowly missed out in London 2012 so for her it was very much a case of taking her opportunities. And she seemed like a very explosive fighter within the ring. Uh, with that in mind, like pr- pretty much each round was very, very close, regardless of which side it actually fell on. Um, so when it was going into kind of even territory towards the end of the game, towards the end of the match, it really did look like a pocket and victory was on the cards. I'm not too sure. I know there's a lot of outrage. I know the off-ball Twitter account. There's a lot of people saying that uh, Katie deserved the fight. I don't 
Oh, well, we've lost Richie McCormick, who's uh, travelling on a bus, literally, as we were speaking there in Rio. Uh, No matter, because uh, I'm also joined on the line now by a gutted Michael Carruth, who, of course, won gold for Ireland in the 1992 Olympics in Barcelona. Michael, uh, you're very welcome. Give me your reaction uh, to uh, Katie's fight this afternoon. Well, reaction force is angry, uh, gutted uh, under statement of the year. Listen, she won the fourth, she won the third, and she won the fourth. And that's the simple truth of boxing. I end the story. She won the fight. Um, I don't know where everybody's saying it's close and what have you. She won those three rounds. Uh, the second round was a little close. We could give it to the Finn boxer, but the other three were McCady's. End of story. Was there any more she could have done um, from your expert eye? I mean, some commentators already fast out of the trap saying she just wasn't gr- aggressive enough. Do you buy that? You don't have to always be aggressive, you know. Boxing is is a skilled sport, you know. That's why the Queensberry rules were introduced so many years ago. It's not about always fighting. It's about the you know the skills and, and moving and hitting. Um, boxing has changed somewhat the way the, the, the scoring has gone because it's gone towards more into a professional um, setup. But in the end of the day, it's not getting hit and hitting your opponent more than them. And that's exactly what Katie done today. Mm. Um, she Katie was never always an aggressive fighter. Any Katie was more a technical fighter. So why would she want to change what she's good at when she, she's won so many titles in the last 10 years? Uh, so Katie was always a stylish fighter. She was always a one-two, left-two, gone, moved. You know, and that's what she was doing today. Uh, her opponent was a strong opponent. I would give her that much. And she, she was she was fit and she was um, she was there in Katie's face. But to be honest, when you look at the two faces at the end of the fight, uh, whose was marked more and it wasn't Katie's mm. you know so uh, that will imply Katie was catching her more as well Yeah the opponent though as she said as we heard Richie say there in her press conference saying how driven she was by the fact that Katie had beaten her five times before many of our fighters though uh, seem to be losing by split decision this week is that yeah. unlucky? There's been a lot of, of um, certainly on Twitter and the likes of that kind of barbed commentary around the judges and also the referees in the ring well, I can say it because I think the referees and judges have been absolutely deplorable this week. And I'm not just meaning to the Irish boxers as well. I was watching other fights there the other, uh, in, yesterday in RTA and, you know, just looking at the cuff and, you know, split decisions coming in here and guys getting wrong decisions. And like even the, like the guy, um, Michael Conlon has to fight now, the, the Russian. He never won that fight yesterday and, uh, and he got it, you know. So, um, it's again, it's, it's just, it's, it, it's shocking some of the decisions. You look at Joe Ward early last week getting two public warrants. Uh, I know Paddy didn't perform to to the best that Paddy could perform, but Paddy was still throwing punches at the end of that fight and probably could have got it as well. So we're, we've been on the bad end of 3-3. Three, three. Serious uh, decisions, let's put it that way. And like Katie, to me... I'm absolutely good at far. I, I really am because the whole I really country want is to, Michael. Yeah, yeah, and it's one of those things. And you know, like if if I was there when she was doing that interview, I'd have just give her a big hug and moved her on somewhere else. You know what I mean? Yeah. So, and and that's we we all fail because she is by far the greatest athlete this country has ever known and ever will know. I think, and um, it's just a, it's a crying shame that these judges basically don't know what they're doing over here, and that's what that's. And I'm I'm being absolutely. Honest here, I, I'm absolutely disgusted the way the judging and refereeing has gone over the last couple of weeks. Okay. In the yeah, obviously, boxing is an individual sport, Michael, but you, you've got to think of like, the, you know, the, 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 the boxing team kind of went over as a group, as a unit. The Michael O'Reilly stuff, do you think that's had an effect? We, well, we initially thought no, but I think now maybe yes, yeah, because uh, I've never known a, an Olympic Games like this, you know, to send, or like not to send eight boxes, we qualified eight boxes and for us to climb um fall the way we have it's been um it's been crazy you know uh, in a sense that you know why is this happening um it's also you know it's a typical irish thing you know when we're up there people like us but when we when we're not performing you know you get the you get the heckles in the bills so it's you know michael riley's decision was michael riley's only michael riley oh riley sorry uh, um decision was only his so with that you know he has to answer he's going to have to answer that for the rest of his life now um, but saying that now again we have Michael uh, coming in tomorrow to try and, and get a medal for us hopefully and hopefully he does you know and kind of brings some kind of you know cheer to Irish boxing this week Yeah Does Irish boxing though it has to be asked does it have anything to think about following all of these disappointments in this week? Of course it does, you know. We would have to, like, like it'd be rude of me not to mention Billy, because Billy, yep. obviously, was a great coach, and um, and Billy, you know, 
you know, he his raising for America was obviously his raising, and you know, with the IBA, I think could have kept him there. They probably could have, you know, but that's between Billy and the IBA, mm. not between anybody else. Uh, it's like anything else. Listen, Stephen Kenny is doing a fantastic job with uh, Dundalk. If he qualifies then for the Champions League next week, do you think he'll be working in Ireland probably the year after? I think some big club in England will grab him. And that's what happens with, with success. People want success. You know, Canada wants Zorantia to come sure. to Canada. So, you know, we're actually, we're guilty of our own uh, success sometimes. Though, you know, trying to keep our, our, our good people here is very hard. And, yeah, but you would have thought, you know, that the, the timing of Billy's departure, you know, maybe we, we shouldn't go on about it too much, but, you know, you, ha- you have to you have to wonder about, about that and the impact that that's now had on. I want to get back to Katie. In terms of her legacy, has this loss today, do you think, affected it at all? Or is she just too much of, you know, a, 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 the nation's sweetheart that, you know, what whatever loss happened today isn't really going to be overshadowed by the previous successes? No, how can it be? You know, she's, she's, she's won, uh, like, so many world titles and so many European titles and Olympic champion to boot. Um, as I said, arguably, and, and it's not even arguably, she's the, she is the greatest athlete we've ever produced in this country. Um, by, and, and by far, outweighs every one of us. You know what I mean? So, and with that, you know, don't remember for this last one. You know, remember this last, these last three fights. Let's really remember these last three fights. Every one of these fights have been on a split decision. Okay. Now, I don't know if the judges and the referees are, are, are sick of Katie Taylor winning all these fights and they're trying to, you know, bring somebody else new into the game or something like that, you know. But, you know, she should never be remembered for this last fight. You know, if anything, she should be remembered for that last interview. You know, to give an interview in the manner she did and the way she held herself uh, is a testament to the, to the young girl. And, you know, Katie can still come, come back from this. There's no question. No, well, that was she, going to be my next question to you. Do you see her fighting again or do you think that this will have impacted on her to this, to such an extent that, that she's kind of done now? Yeah, well, it's 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 always a, a taboo thing with a with a boxer that when they lose and you know they they've had such a great career, you know, do you stay one more fight and sometimes one more fight is just one too many. And um, with Katie again, she's she's she saved this country so well. It's a question that I I if Katie K. Taylor had won a gold medal this time around, I would have asked her myself to to retire after this, you know. And I just think this is our time to maybe reflect on what she's done and take a little time time off. Don't make a, a rash decision when she comes home, yep. which I don't think she will. And if if it comes to that that she does retire, well well done. She's retired and she's she's as again I've I've said what I've said about her, she's the she's the greatest ever in that regard. Um but I don't think she should she should chase this again in the sense that you know, like I said, boxers tend to stay in the ring one or two many fights too long, and um, she's she's not she, she she doesn't have to give anything to Ireland anymore. This yeah. is this is the greatest. That's it, and we're all very proud. Uh, and indeed, of yourself in your day as well, Irish Olympian Michael Carruth. Thanks very much for joining us. The right hook with the new Mitsubishi Outlander seven seater automatic with sporty paddle shifters for super smooth gear changes at your fingertips. MitsubishiMotors.ie now, do you realise that having two children will cost an estimated half a million euro over the course of 25 years? Well, my next guest has investigated this situation in a practical level as well, I think it's fair to say. Connor Pope, Consumer Affairs Correspondent with the Irish Times. You're very welcome to the programme. Connor, give us a breakdown of these costs. Well, the costs actually start before the child is born, as you can well imagine, Tara. Um, and an awful lot, one of the good things you can say about the Irish health system is that under state health policy, all antenatal visits, labour and delivery costs, as well as postnatal care, are completely covered, regardless of whether or not a mother has health insurance or a medical card. Yeah. So that's one really good thing that the Irish healthcare system does well. But in spite of that, a lot of Irish parents do opt for private care, and it's at that point that the costs will start mounting up. And the fees charged by consultant obstetricians can vary quite significantly between hospitals and even in the same hospital. But you could end up typically paying between 3,000 and 5,000 euro uh, per child. So if you take the average, that's four grand. So the cost of having two children in the private system would start off at 8,000 euro. But of course, that's only the very beginning because you, you have to kit out your house before you have your first baby. <laughs> yeah. So you need to get the buggy, you need to get the cot, you need to get the monitor, you need to get the steriliser, you need to get all of the other paraphernalia that you need, including things that you don't even think about before you have a child, like changing stations and all sorts of other things. And um, 
And you know, it depends. Like depending on how on, on how useful or your friends are, or whether or not they have stuff you can borrow, or depending on how savvy you are when it comes to shopping, it probably costs you around three grand for your first child. Like you can get it for less than that, but you probably would. You know, it, given that buggies, a lot of buggies cost thousand euro, twelve hundred euro. Which then, even if you go for a you know a more budget conscious um, buggy, that's only the start of it, Connor. Because then you're into nappies, you're into obviously they're uh, rapidly growing, so you're replacing clothes every couple of months. Is exactly. It, is is it fair to say, though, that it's it's when school kicks around that that's kind of where the real expense starts to well, kick actually, in? Well, actually, yeah, there's a couple of really substantial expenses. By the way, the cost of nappies for one child is, is €1,000. So, and that's to, to get them to, to when they're potty trained. Um, but another expense would be if, you're, if you have children, you probably need a bigger house. So you're going to have to trade up from one or two bedroom house to a three bedroom house. Even allowing for rents in Dublin, that'll be another €300 Euro a month. In rent, that's €72,000. But it's the next one that's the real killer for a lot of parents, and that's childcare costs. Because yeah. prices charged by creches depends on where you are in the country. But, you know, a typical price per month per child is €1,000. Now, that, that, you know, that, that, that's an average of, of, of a lot of urban centres, which means the cost is €2,000 if two parents want to go to work, per, you know, over just over four years. That comes in at a fairly eye-watering €90,000 for childcare. Quite child often, as, as we both know, and we've discussed it before, it's not, oft, it's not always if two parents want to go to work, it's because maybe they have to go Absolutely, to work. Absolutely. And, and it is, it's a second mortgage, and in some cases, a third mortgage nearly yep. on top of the yeah, monthly and expenditure. And, there's very, and I know that the government will say we've got, they've got the free child, care, child place, uh, you know, the yeah, for, for three-year-olds or four-year-olds, that really doesn't help too many parents substantially. No, it's very uh, short hours in the yeah, day. Absolutely. Then you have childcare costs will fall once kids, once kids go to a, a non-fee-paying national school, but that doesn't mean they disappear entirely. And even if you allow for even if you allow kind of a hundred euros a week for after-school childcare, that that um, uh, adds up. Then you have the cost of sending children to our free education or into our free education system, according to the Irish League of Credit Unions. That's a thousand euros per year while a, while a child is yeah, in primary I school. Yeah, I had my own experience. I, my oldest is actually going to sec- starting secondary school yeah. next week, and I had my own experience with that with the books at the weekend. And you're probably spending hundreds of euros on it. Oh my God, close to three hundred, and that's that's. Well, I still haven't got all the books. No, and, and then the, that's on top of the uniform and the shoes, and then you know, yeah. new bag that's required because he's obviously got more or kit to be bringing with Absolutely. them to secondary. And then you're going to have the extracurricular activities. All told, you probably won't have much change out of €1,500 once May of next year comes around. Now, that's €1,000 per child per year for eight years of primary school and €1,500 per child per year for secondary school. That takes the cost of education to €34,000. Um, then you have, um, you have to spend money on um, how much, to, if you want to send them to university or if they want to go to university. Now, conservatively, allowing for you know, four or five thousand euro a year per child. Now, even given that school registra- uh, university registration fees are two and a half, three thousand euro, so that's not a whole lot of money. You're still you won't have much change out of forty thousand euros when all the university fees have been added up. Um, and then you have things like um, summer camps. Now, luckily for, for 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 all parents, Santa Claus takes care of Christmas presents. So that's not a cost that parents have to factor in. But still, when they have to buy other Christmas presents and birthday presents, you mightn't have much change out of €20,000 for two children between the the day they're born and the day they hit 25. And again, not necessarily always relating this back to my own situation, but in my own household this morning, two of my kids were going to other people's birthday parties today. So that was was 40 quid before I'd even managed to get (laughs) out of the house this morning, you know? And like it's 40 quid. Oftentimes people are spending 40 quid on, on, on on presents for kids they don't even know and it's just you know and you're probably going to hit the stage now where you just have to give them cash and um, there's other expenses that you know you don't really think about like for instance holidays obviously there's the added cost of flights and accommodation so you could put that conservatively at 800 euros a year if you want to take them off for two weeks somewhere like the Costa del Sol um, until until they reach 16 and then they won't want to go on holidays with you anymore but you also have to factor in the, the fact that prices in child-friendly locations spike dramatically in the summer so you have to take your holidays in July or August as opposed to June or September. So that adds another €1,500 yeah. Euros onto the annual cost of the holidays, taking the total cost of holidays if you've got two kids to €27,700 until, until they're 16. Even if you allocate a fairly miserly €500 Euro, Euro per year per child for clothes between 2016 and 2040, you're still looking at 12 grand over the course of the whole time. Okay, listen, before you depress me any further, tell me the cold hard facts and figures here. In order to be able to afford this, 
and I have three, not two, but in order to be able to afford even the two that we've done the, the, the rudimentary figures on, how much do I actually need to earn? Okay, well, just to afford, let's say we'll, we'll, we'll allow you another 20% for your third child. So you'll probably need to earn, Tara, about 1.3 million euro over the course of the next <laughs> 20 years or so to, to just cover their costs. And that wouldn't buy you so much as a slice of pizza once they go to bed. Ah, Jesus, I mean, you're, ta- you're, not, you're talking in the realms of second and third jobs here. Ah, yeah, but it's worth everything. <clears throat> oh, of spent. course it is. Listen, though, Connor, it has to be said, some people go overboard too, don't they? I mean, I think there is, and I don't know, you know, this is maybe a, a, an understandable symptom of the, you know, two-person working family that is so common. But we do kind of tend to overcompensate maybe for the fact that we don't have as much time to spend with them. A lot of people, I think, go overboard with the labels for the clothes and, you know, the best of everything for their kids. You know, you're absolutely right. And, I, and I'm not going to do the whole Monty Python now. Well, it wasn't like that when I were a lad. But, you know, I, I went, there was lots of things I wanted as a child that I didn't have. Yes. You know, and they were silly things like ROM runners or Adidas runners. They're all these kind of branded things. But I would <laughs> you're taking loved. me back now remembering the ROMs. <laughs> but I didn't have them. And like, it didn't do me a, a blind bit of harm. I think nowadays, I think Irish parents are less inclined to let their children go without. And I'm only talking going without in that very nominal sense. Because uh, we, want, we want to give them everything. And I think there is that tendency to spend more than we perhaps have to. But I have to say, when I was doing the numbers here, I deliberately didn't over-exaggerate. Because, you know, there's no point... I mean, you, I could have said, OK, well, then you're going to send these children to Belvedere College and they're going to go off on three-week summer holidays on their gap year and all that. Mm. None of that stuff is factored in. Mm. So this is the kind of, just the typical spending that most parents will have to confront. And, like, like it, it sounds daunting, but the reality is it is spread over 10, 20, 25, actually 25 years. So, it, you know, it is manageable for an awful lot of parents. And ultimately, hopefully, that, 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 that it means that if we, if we, do, if we do our job right, they, they won't put us into homes when we're elderly <laughs> and they look after us when we're, we're old and infirm. Yeah, chance to be a fine thing. They'll have long <laughs> forgotten the sacrifices we made, just as we did with our own parents, Connor. Let's not be white. The whiter. Most of the texts we're getting in are, are on the issue of childcare. Nolan Cork says second child just started crash. We now pay fifteen hundred and fifty euro per month. It's eighteen and a half grand per year out of our net income. It's a disgrace. And uh, somebody else who doesn't put their name has said, talk about conservative estimates. I've two kids, aged three and four, have spent fifty grand in childcare in the last three years. Uh, and the ECCE, that's the free childcare year that you mentioned, three hours a day over thirty-eight weeks is not a free year's no, childcare. It's, it's just a reduction of sixty-four euro per week which in the grand scheme of things is a help but uh, not free childcare by any means No they're absolutely right and the childcare thing is the thing that just it absolutely hammers parents and it's actually, you know, it, it, it doesn't have to be like that because it's not like that in other parts of the world. It's not like that in Nordic countries. It's not like that in a lot of more progressive European countries. And it just seems incredibly unfair. Very unfair. And look, it's a whole other day's conversation Absolutely. to get into the where's and, and, uh, and why for's as to why we don't have it. But for the moment, Conor Pope, Consumer Affairs Correspondent with the Irish Times. Thanks for scaring the bejesus out of us. <laughs> Thanks a lot. Bye bye. The Right Hook with the new Mitsubishi Outlander 7-seater automatic with sporty paddle shifters for super smooth gear changes at your fingertips. MitsubishiMotors.ie New figures from data analytics specialist STOR show that the daily rate of a hotel room in Dublin has increased by almost 20% in the last year. It's led to calls from a number of quarters that hotels should either keep their prices down or face a return to the normal hospitality VAT rate of 13.5%. Now, one of those dissenting voices is former Minister for Trade and Development, Joe Costello, who joins me on the line. Also on the line this evening, though, Wexford hotelier and a friend of the right hook, Liam Griffin. Good evening, gentlemen. Thanks for joining me. Good evening, Tara. Joe, if I can start with you, as you are one of these dissenting voices, as I outlined there, an almost 20% increase in hotel rooms in Dublin in the prices in the last 12 months. That was on the back of an almost 30% increase in the previous year. So it's an almost 50% jump in two years. But, you know, on the one hand, shouldn't they be allowed to capitalise if the business is there? It is supply and demand. Well, of course, the what you said there is approximately a 50% increase in the space of two years, which sounds exorbitant to, in, to anybody's mind. But remember what was done in 2011, and it's part of that government, and I supported it very strongly, was that because tourism was flagging very badly, we were down to about 6 million tourists, now we're over 8 million tourists per annum, that we would give a special concession to the hospitality sector 
to reduce the VAT rate from 13.5% to 9%. And the focus was to ensure that we would give a good deal to tourists coming to this country. Now, this was very much welcomed by the hospitality sector. And from that point onwards, in the last five years, it has uh, gone forward in leaps and bounds. Now, it, the prices are fastest growing in Europe. The bed occupancy is the highest in Europe at over 90%. And the revenue from um, per bedroom is again the highest in Europe. And we have record numbers of tourists. So at this point in time, I think it's time to take a cold look at what the situation is and whether or not taxpayers' money, because don't forget that this is VAT that is being missed on, that uh, is a concession of VAT 4.5%, which would amount to in the region of 600 million to 700 million euro in a year that has been lost to the taxpayer and lost to the services that it might provide. So I think it's high time that we said to the hospitality industry, and particularly the hotel sector, that the prices are too high, you're beginning to kill the golden goose, um, and the, pre- the budget coming up in October should be a time to look very coldly at whether or not we should continue to provide this tax concession of 4.5% from 13.5% to 9%. Liam Griffin, you're a hotelier. Are you, uh, according to Joe, he seems to say that you guys are becoming the architects of your own destruction here again. Yes, but actually, Joe's uh, fundamentally, I, I don't have a major disagreement with Joe, actually, but provided he keeps to, we're talking about Dublin here, and the problem, the problem is that a catch-all won't work in this instance. I mean, that, those figures, for example, from 2008 right through to 2012 and 13, hotels in, in, in rural Ireland were underwater. And I have to put on record myself that only for the tax break or the, or the, the reduction in the VAT, it would have exacerbated for private uh, smaller hoteliers, many who have gone during the recession, it would have exacerbated and made it even much worse. So I recognise what the government did. It was, a very, it was a very astute move at the time, and it certainly saved a lot of businesses, my own included, I would have to say. So from that perspective, that was a great move, but it also was a move that helped the industry to re-establish re- itself. But there's a two-tier divide here, and this is the problem we have with tourism. For example, Dublin, and it's the fact, the fact of life in Dublin, the economic circumstances in Dublin are completely different to rural Ireland, absolutely completely different to rural Ireland. There is absolutely no way in rural Ireland that I'm aware of rates rising like that, anywhere like that. Rates have gone by about 6% in rural Ireland, and that's merely to take care of rising costs, and costs that didn't never go down, like the commercial rates and all of those things that never moved. And incidentally, Dublin got a 30% reduction on commercial rates for hotels in three different, three, dist- three different districts in Dublin. That has not even come down the country yet, despite the fact that there was supposed to, the, the valuation office was to come down the country and they've only started in a few places. We don't know when they're ever going to do Wexford because we, we can't get an answer as to when they'll do Wexford. And that was supposed to happen as well. So the fixed cost charges against hotels haven't changed even coming back from, say, the government. But in terms of VAT, if you look at Dublin in isolation, it's a different model than the model in the country. And while that may sound right for Dublin, it is not right for rural Ireland, where not just hotels, but like, I don't know how much it needs to be preached. The rural Ireland has been decimated by the recession. And people who are in the rural Ireland have been decimated as well. So are you, so, are you uh, saying, uh, Liam Griffin, that, that hoteliers around the country uh, outside of Dublin haven't also been increasing their prices? I'm not saying that, and I'd say 6% might be an average, or 4%, between the 4 and 6%, which would be prop, uh, regular, but they're not increasing anything like by the amount. And by the way, incidentally, they're coming from a much lower base as well in terms of their rate and their average room rate. The average room rate in the country is nothing like Dublin, so we have an issue here mm. that's going to have to be confronted some way. Joe, what do you have to say to that? This is a, a Dublin problem. You're over-egging the pudding here. Well, Dublin certainly is is that the extreme polarity of the problem, about 40% of the hotel industry is in Dublin. And I would certainly like to see somebody from the Hotel Federation representing the Dublin area uh, speaking as well as Liam. And I understand that uh, Liam is doing very good work down in, in Wexford, as he does for the GEA as well. But what has happened in the last five years is that the number of tourists has increased by a third, from 6 million to over 8 million. We don't know what it's going to be, but it's going to be well over 8 million this year. And they're not just staying in Dublin, they're travelling around the country as well. And 
what we've got in Dublin is an absolute rip-off situation of a 50% increase in two years. And I think Liam should speak to the Hotel Federation, to speak to his colleagues in Dublin, because if Dublin is going to kill the golden goose, it's time that the country began to stand up and the hotels and the rest of the country to say to Dublin that, for example, in September, when every room, every hotel room is, is, is full with the All-Ireland Finals, they're going to put the jack up the prices enormously again, that it's time Dublin copped on because they're destroying the industry in this respect. But Joe, what about the, the, the basis of the argument that it, this is supply and demand? I mean, you alluded to that to yourself, the fact that the, the VAT uh, reduction was necessary at all back in 2011 was because the demand was not there. There was an oversupply and lack of demand. Now that seems to have righted itself. Tourists surely, though, are going to start voting with their feet. If it's too expensive, they'll just bypass Dublin. Absolutely. I think we have to go back to why we introduced it in the first place. We give this tax concession, this VAT concession, was to improve the tourist industry as well as the hospitality sector. We have, it has been very successful in improving both. And remember, we're talking about, uh, on the one side, a private operation, because all the hotels are private hotels. And on the other hand, you're talking about government money and taxpayers' money. So you cannot justify paying out taxpayers' money to this sector while they are jacking up the prices to the degree they are in a large percentage of the country. No, but I would argue, Joe Costello, that you also can't... uh, You were saying there that, you know, Liam Griffin should talk to the Irish Hotels Federation. They should look at sort of having a two-track system, so to speak, whereby maybe there's a VAT uh, increase again for the hotels in Dublin. By that rationale, people who live in the country would pay less income tax or or pay lower VAT rates on other goods and services. No, I didn't say that. And I wouldn't say that. I'm talking about it from a government standpoint. The whole purpose of giving the concession was to improve the sector. And the sector has been enormously improved. Uh, as I said, the, don't forget that the tourist industry is through the entire country, not just Dublin. And that has increased by over two, 2 million people. Now, what I think we have to look at very carefully is coming up to the budget uh, in October, whether or not we can still justify giving that tax concession, which would result in 600 to 700 million euro, which would be very useful to provide extra services, whether it's in the health service or elsewhere, which badly needs it, uh, or whether we should allow that concession when we know that 40% of the industry in Dublin, at least, is ripping off the customer. And I think the government has to make a decision on that and whether or not it is still fair or right to continue to provide the concession in those circumstances. Liam Griffin, you want to respond to that? I do. I'd just like to say, like from my perspective, whether Joe wants to face up to this or not, we have a two-tier problem here. And for me to talk to the Irish Hotels Federation, um, I can't go in and say to somebody in Dublin what they should charge. Uh, I can have my own feelings on it. But the bottom line is, like everything that's happened in the domestic economy, which has happened non-stop while Joe was in government himself, and I recognise the work on the VAT, but you have to look, rural Ireland has been decimated by a lot of stuff that never hit Dublin at all. So what we're saying here, we have a problem in Dublin, but we're going to try and hit this across the entire country. What happens when the negative impact is felt by the people in, in, the, in the country, like they have in, in the, all over Ireland, where a lot of hoteliers have been totally dispossessed and foreign vulture funds have come in and whipped up hotels for very small money? Uh, they're not picking them up in Dublin for very small money at the moment, that's for sure. So the problem is one of administration. And if Joe feels so strongly about that, he has to come up with a solution that doesn't negatively impact on rural Ireland. And that's a fact. Now, if they charge too much in Dublin, you've made a point yourself, Sarah, it may help the rest of the country. But that's not the way we want it, want it helped, because tourism has, has started to become much more of a capital city uh, and has spread out from capital city. And in fairness to the false Ireland, have tried to come up with some very imaginative things to take it out to the rest of the country. But you can't, that one size doesn't fit all here, and you can't take out a hammer to crack a nut and break the nut in rural Ireland. And, uh, and yet the impact wouldn't be as badly felt in Dublin because they can afford to pay. So well, like, that's a answer... conundrum. Yes, yes, jo- yes, yes, Joe. Well, first of all, remember that if Dublin continues the way it's going, they will kill the golden goose, and that will have a further impact on the rest of the country. So that has to be taken into consideration. But what the government has done, one of the last things the government did do, was to double the amount of money, and that was through a piece of legislation that was introduced in January of this year, to 
doubled the amount of money given to Fortune Ireland from 150 million annually to 300 million for the purpose of supporting tourist uh, traffic and facilities and services throughout the country. So that's one way that uh, an effort has been made in that respect. And the second then, as I said, we have increased from two, from 6 million tourists, we've increased it to over 8 million tourists. So that's been felt around the country as well. So I don't think it's, it's good enough for Liam just to, to, to cry wolf uh, all the time. I think he can do it and his own industry and look, uh, look coldly at how the situation is developing at the present time. And all I'm saying is that the government, unless there is something done in relation to the exorbitant rates that are charged in Dublin, not only will it kill the industry here and it has an impact on the country as well, but that also the end result will be that um, we, are, we are going to find that there's so much money that the government just can't afford to be spending it on this particular industry at this particular time. Do you take that point, Liam Not Griffin? At all. I don't take that point. In fact, Joe, that's a very kind of political thing, you know, that crying wolf. Joe, you haven't seen my figures. I'll show you my figures. I will show you my figures, every single one of them. And you tell me if we can afford to take that kind of a hit and not pass it on to customers. It's not possible. We've trimmed out all our costs. In fairness to us and in fairness to our business, our staff ourselves and management, everybody at every level, has taken enormous hits, which we would never recover from individually. And we have taken that. And if we talk about a profitability, there's no way that the profitability of hotels in the country or anything like comparisons with Dublin. What you're basically saying is, you're crying wolf. That's absolutely totally untrue, Joe. And that is not fair of you to say that. No, you I'm don't not. Know. You no, don't know I'm the saying. facts. Hold on a minute now, Joe, let me finish. You don't know the facts. So I will give you the facts. I will show you the facts in the paper from 2007 when the crazy system which brought in an oversupply all over the country and then led to an undersupply because the economy was busted and people couldn't make a development, uh, couldn't make any, there's no development. So we haven't matched the development. Look at the state of housing in the country. Exactly the same. It all came to a stop because of the financial crisis, not brought about by people that are crying wolf, but brought about by the financial circumstances created by governments and its administration. Yeah. So like you can't come back to hoteliers then and say to them, you're in the country, or you're not doing as well as Dublin, but we're holding you responsible. That's a different political answer, Joe, and I think that's not fair. I think, you know, to be fair to Liam Griffin as well, you know, cognizance has to be given to the fact that the tourism sector was one of the first albeit with government assistance in the VAT cut, that sort of, you know, started to get itself back into shape again. Um, I, I, I'm afraid time is against us. Liam, I want to ask you one quick question, though, before we finish up. Uh, Joe was talking there about the, you know, the, the continued pumping of funds into the likes of Tourism Ireland. The big initiative in recent years in, in your neck of the woods where you operate in and around Wexford and Kilkenny was Ireland's ancient East. Are you seeing any, uh, any payback from that? Is it working for you? Yeah, it is, and there's a lot of effort to try and get people to make more of an effort to work together as well. And there is a good, there's a good, uh, a good uh, vibe in that, and it's going well in terms of its uh, the reaction to international tourism. I would have felt at first when I saw, saw the ancient East that it was a reply to the to the Wild Atlantic Way, sure. which is a very good initiative. And I didn't think as much of it as I do now. I think that they've put a lot of time into it, and it's a good initiative, and they're putting a good effort into it. And I think we will see the rewards of that over time, but it will take time. But by the way, just to finish. You can't get away from the fact that capital cities are are a lot of where tourism starts and then they filter out from there. So on top of all that, we would expect the filtration into into the kind of ancient East area as well. And hopefully that will happen. All right. A hotelier, Liam Griffin, and uh, former Minister for Trade and Development, Joe Costello. Thanks very much for joining us on The Right Hook this evening. The Right Hook with the new Mitsubishi Outlander 7-seater automatic with sporty paddle shifters for super smooth gear changes at your fingertips. MitsubishiMotors.ie Now, figures obtained by Fianna Fáil have shown that 10 of Ireland's 29 emergency departments don't have 24-7 emergency consultant cover. Fergal Hickey of the Irish Association of Emergency Medicine said earlier on News Talk Breakfast today that Ireland simply has too many emergency departments for its population of 4.7 million people. Well, to discuss, I'm joined now by Dr Chris Luke, who is an A&E consultant at University College Hospital in Cork. Chris, you're very welcome to the programme. Thanks, Tara. Do these figures surprise you at all, learning that... uh, 10 of our 29 uh, EDs don't have 24-7 cover? No, 
I mean, not in the slightest. I, I happen to to be employed to. Uh, I, I'm employed still in, in three of them. Uh, one of them has, has closed, of course, historically in the last five, ten years. But when I first came back from the UK, I was working in three hospitals in Cork. So I'm very, very familiar with the situation. Uh, for example, in, in Cork and of course nationally. I mean, the, the problem is we have really too many patients and we have too few doctors at all levels. And if you compare us with the UK, for for instance, we're really about 15 to 20 years behind them. I mean, the, the average small emergency department in the UK now would have about six to ten consultants in emergency medicine, and the big departments, you know, the really big city centre departments, would have between 15 and 20 consultants, and, you know, we, we have an absolute fraction of that. Now, you said too many patients and too few doctors. Is there anything that we can do to address either one of those? If we start with the patients, firstly, are there people who are in need or seeking um, advice from an emergency department who really shouldn't be. That's not where they should be in the well, system. Un- unfortunately, Tara, it's a fact that we, we have kind of become what I call the emergency department store and that we're, we're now expected to kind of uh, to offer uh, a, a panacea, a cure-all, a fix for almost every conceivable problem that affects human beings, be they psychiatric or dermatological uh, or orthopedic or, or long-standing congenital problems. I mean, it is astonishing the sort of things that we now see. And many of them, of course, are, not, are, are no longer emergencies. I mean, Emergency really is something that you kind of don't expect and happens suddenly and needs urgent uh, initial care. But many of our patients each day have problems that are weeks, months, or sometimes even years uh, in, the, in the making. So I suppose if you want to, to reduce the number of patients that we see or we cater for, you, you, you need to offer uh, you know, alternatives such as better access to imaging uh, you know, for general practitioners so they can do ultrasounds of gold batters, for example, or see CT scans of people who've had a head injury and have been discharged from a hospital, or as, as we run in Cork, for example, a, a rapid access service to consultants for GPs for patients who have been discharged but who, you know, who are causing concern. So there, there are lots of innovations that we could bring in. And I suppose the other thing we could then do is have a hierarchy of departments. And I suppose this is where Fergal, my colleague, was, 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 was drifting towards this morning in the conversation. We do need to have you know, a tiered or hierarchical system of, of emergency departments. So, you know, central large hubs for the blue light cases and then perhaps slightly less urgent departments Mm -hmm. which are only open for 12 hours a day for the the walking wounded or the slightly less complex cases. But sure, I mean, even if you think, if I think back to my childhood and everybody, you know, most people had their own local GP, their family doctor, you would have known him from the day you were born. He knew you from nine months before you were born. If you needed a doctor, uh, you know, in the evening time, they were on the end of the phone and they did make house calls. I appreciate that many areas of the country now have their their DDoc or, you know, whatever whatever the name of the service is in, in, in their local area. But there does also seem to be a lack of GPs who, who are working in the way that they used to. Yes. I'm not casting judgment no, on that one I mean, way or the you're, other, you're Chris. You're right. There's been a, a transformation in, in primary care. So it would seem to us certainly that uh, you know, few, fewer cases are being stitched or are being fewer cases of abdominal pain are being observed overnight, for example. Uh, so, yes, that, that does seem to be an issue. And, of course, a, a vast number of our general practitioners are single-handed uh, and middle-aged and are about to retire in the next five years. So, you know, we're looking uh, at a, a fairly ominous uh, prospect coming down the track over the next few years so it's likely to get worse rather than you know before it gets better Mm. Now you mentioned also the shortage of doctors so what can be done in that regard why why do we have a shortage of doctors in the first place is it simply that the new um, new entrants into the field are lured away by better terms and conditions in other countries uh, or, or is there something more to it than just that is that too simplistic well, it's it's not too simplistic. Certainly, I mean, it's the argument I keep getting, uh, I keep I keep hearing every day. I mean, I, I'm I mean, I've been, as you probably know, been arguing uh, about this situation for many many years. Yep. I used to be director of education in in two of the big teaching hospitals in the UK and Ireland, and you know, and there was a, a, an interest in the over all pastoral care of doctors and their direct their career planning and so forth. I have suggested in the past that. Do- you know, people who want to go to medical school might get an allowance if they agree, for example, to work for six months or three months even in the emergency department at the end of their training in return perhaps for an extra, you know, they might get 20 points off their, their, the criteria for, for admission to medical school. That has been, I thought, in a sense, slapped down. But I still you know, offer it as, as a possible, you know, solution. I certainly think that the issue is about motivation. And there's no doubt that our graduates are not motivated to work in, in emergency departments 
departments because, I suppose, of the, the infamous overcrowding and, and, and general difficulty that is associated with the departments. And, and hearing the likes of you and me, I mean, last week it was waiting lists, this time it's emergency departments without cover. How can, though, Chris, Dr Chris Luke, how can an emergency department function at all without 24-7 uh, provision of a consultant, of an A&E consultant? Well, there's a simple answer to that, Tara, is the fact that historically that's what's uh, evolved over the last hundred years since, you know, I suppose casualty departments first started in the mid-19th century and evolved then to become emergency departments over the last 20 to 40 years. Uh, you know, traditionally we have relied, over-relied on, 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 on doctors in training, and I'm afraid we haven't employed enough consultants, uh, you know, fully trained uh, specialists uh, in, in, in recent years. And, and, you know, they have the same problem to a slightly lesser extent in the, in the UK. And of course, it's a vicious circle because, you know, if you don't have senior doctors around the place, then some of the trainees become, you know, dispirited or, or will not, you know, will not be recruited in the first in the first place. So it, there, there is a there are a lot of false economies being made, I think, in terms of the failure to, to recruit. Having said that, you know, I, there, one of the things I think may work in, 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 in years to come is what I call a hybrid model, which is where you, get, you employ consultants that are working across both public and, and the private sector. Now, that was regarded as anathema. 10, 15, 20 years ago, but I've seen it work in the UK and in, in Australia where doctors who work one day a, a week in the private sector, in a sense, they get a break from the, from the, from the battle on the, on the front line of the public sector, and that does seem to be working in terms of recruitment. Now, as you rightly said, you, you know, you, you've been very vocal about these issues and other issues surrounding the health service. Fergal Hickey as well from the Irish Association of Emergency, Emergency Medicine. We regularly hear from consultants at the end of their tether with whatever the situation is that's particular to them. Most notably, a number of consultants in Tala have come out lately. We've heard from uh, ophthalmologists in, in, in Crumlin. You doctors who were actually there at the coal face seem to have practical ideas and suggestions. Is nobody paying the blindest bit of notice to you? Oh, no, it's a very good question, Tara. It's a long time since I was asked my opinion. Uh, it, it, I don't know. I, I, I like to think that occasionally people are listening to the radio. I like to think occasionally they might read a, one of my occasional letters to the, to the Irish Times or whatever. But, I, you know, I, I, certainly I, I do think that the fundamental issue is that each and every consultant in emergency medicine who on average has spent 15 to 20 years in the system has ideas. And I think each and every one of them is worth speaking to in terms of, of going forward. Just on the issue of the, this 10 departments and getting back to that, is culling these 10 departments, is that the answer then? Well, I don't think the word culling really applies. I think really what we're, there needs to be a sort of planned um, uh, you know, reduction in terms of their, their, their capacity, in terms of ours. Uh, you know, fundamentally, there's a difficulty in recruiting staff. So we have to recognize that reality uh, and minimize the risk. So basically, the, the, what I think needs to happen is that, as I say, there needs to be a hierarchy. So there needs to be a, a network of, say, 10, 15 major departments that take all blue light uh, ambulances, 24 hours a day and are appropriately staffed, resourced, equipped and so forth. And then there need to be uh, another tier below that of cases of patient, of departments that look after what I call cap complex ambulatory uh, cases. Now that's a lot of, of the, the workload. I mean about 70 to 80% of the patients who attend an emergency department every day in this country are discharged. So that gives you some sense of the amount of the workload that is not, that doesn't need to go to a, in a sense a blue light hub department. So that's how we need to start to understand the, the workload, the, the profile of the workload, uh, and plan accordingly. For example, we have a, a wonderful local injuries unit in Grown Abroader in Cork, uh, which was established about five to seven years ago, and it's a fantastically popular and efficient department, which sees about 15 to 16,000 patients a year, and it has been a godsend in terms of looking after people with relatively minor limb uh, uh, wounds and injuries in this city. So there are examples of good practice and of really welcome innovation. Finally, Dr. Chris Luke, though I hate to appear in any way cynical, but we do have, I suppose, a rather tenuous government in place. Nobody can really answer when the next election may or may not be. Do you honestly think any TD in the country is going to stand by and see EDs, if not culled, even phased into slightly different ways of operating and being? 
Well, I think if they know, if they if they if they look into the, the setup around the, the country and look look for examples of best practice, as I suggested uh, in Cork, I think we have we have an evolving system that, that that's very promising. With you know, we have three units basically within the city, and I think they're evolving towards the, the hub and the tiered uh, services. And you know, the service I think it could improve if we focused on the, the, the evolution of our our services into appropriately stepped and, and configured uh, departments. So I, I think I think if people, you know, if there's an honesty uh, and uh, there's an understanding of, of what the emergency consultants are actually recommending, I, I think there's no need whatsoever for people to, to worry about the future. But I do think that th- those who are in charge of planning all this really need to talk to those on the front line. Uh, okay, very good. Dr. Chris Luke, A&E consultant at the University College Hospital in Cork. I don't know, I think myself, uh, the issue is far too much of a political hot potato to see any real movement or action in the uh, coming years, certainly. The Right Hook with the new Mitsubishi Outlander seven-seater automatic with sporty paddle shifters for super smooth gear changes at your fingertips. MitsubishiMotors.ie now, third-level colleges have come under criticism yet again this year for fueling a points race by manipulating the CAO system in order to drive up the points requirements. The universities are accused of doing this essentially by offering courses with very, very few places in them in an attempt to increase the entry points and make it seem more prestigious to students and, of course, their parents as well. In a moment, I'll be joined by Ed Walsh, the founding president of the University of Limerick. First, though, on the line is Brian Mooney, education columnist with the Irish Times, Brian, this change uh, has, this charge rather, has come from the president of Maynooth, Philip Nolan. He's saying that the CAO is essentially being used as a marketing tool for universities. Is that the way you see it? Well, this is all coming from the transition report, which he chaired, which was published last year and found very clear evidence that there is a disproportionate number of courses that are offered to students which are highly specialised which may have less than five places actually on the course code, but in reality are parts of much bigger courses. But effectively, when you offer the big course, which may have three, 400 places in it, the final point entry requirement, which is the last person through the door, could be around 400, 450, etc. And the way Irish people think, both students and parents, about the CAO would discourage people who would be make, maybe getting 100 points higher from applying for that course because people see that they should be using their points or not wasting their points using the kind of language. It is total nonsense, but that's how people think. And to encourage people of the high point scores to apply for that course, they literally slice off a tiny number of places from the overall course, create a separate course code, offer it as a subset of the bigger course. Therefore, because there's only five places, the last points in will be 550 or 540 That therefore draws in the high point student who thinks they're going for a high point course. They find themselves in the same lecture theatre as the other 95 students, but at that stage they're in. If they want to change these specialist um, courses they've selected, they're perfectly entitled to do so. The college won't uh, object in any way because it's all about getting in the high point student who thinks the way we've just described. And when you look at it, there are 70 courses in the entire CEO system that have more than 100 places in around 70, and there's 1,300 courses. So that leaves a huge number of courses that are just subsets of bigger disciplines. What then do the universities have to gain from having that bigger number of, of courses? Well, they gain by virtue of the fact that if a student is looking at, 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 at their choices and they see a course in, say, for instance, Trinity that's 560, and they see a course in UCD that's 450, and they think, well, the one in Trinity must, must be better, but the one in Trinity, and I'm just using these names as an, you know, as sure. examples, yeah. might in fact be a subset of the bigger course. So effectively, then what UCD has to do is to create a similar small course to compete with Trinity, and then DCU has to do that to compete with the other two. Yeah. And then year on year, this thing develops. So we've gone from a situation where maybe 15, 20 years ago, we might have had two or 300 choices for students to consider And now we have 1,300 choices for students to consider. And to a large extent, that is in no way a reflection on this massive increase in disciplines. There hasn't been any huge increase in disciplines. But by subdividing it now, Philip Nolan himself as president of um, Maynooth has 
you know, introduced this in Minute, and they have drastically reduced the number of courses. UCD have done similar things, but, you know, there are five other universities and there are institutes of technology, and to a lesser extent, some of them have began to move. But we are still in an era when effectively students are selecting highly specialised choices after the Leaving Cert. And both Philip Nolan and I personally agree that we should allow students to enter college on the broadest range of choice possible, engineering, science, into business, etc. And if students then want to make specialist choices, yeah, then specialise in, yeah, so. in their and discipline. That will obviously yeah. help dropout rates, etc. Yeah, because that's another, and you and I have spoken on this programme indeed about the, the, the very high dropout rates that we have at third level here. But there is clearly, uh, Brian, then a belief among students and crucially, I'd say their parents also, that these higher points courses are higher quality. Are you saying categorically that that is not necessarily the case? What they are, are simply subsets of existing disciplines. They all have to be. Effectively, they're within a faculty, they're within a, they're within a department. And effectively, by actually offering them out as highly specialised choices, then effectively, they are within that faculty. Now, there are specific choices within those faculties. Um, and by offering them out as four or five or six places, you are guaranteeing that the sixth person in or the fifth person in, the last person to get an offer, will in fact have a very high point score and that that then will be published opposite that course in the newspapers and by the CEO, etc. And that that therefore draws the attraction of those parents and students who perceive that they have this point score and don't want to be seen to be wasting points by applying for a course which is 100 or 150 points less. Because we have this whole philosophy in Ireland of not wasting a point. It's complete nonsense. It's total rubbish. Mm. But effectively, it's how people think. And therefore, the colleges respond to it because it's their marketing departments that are trying to draw in. Because remember, if you think about it, international rankings are what universities obviously ultimately think about because that's what draws in the foreign students that are paying high fees. International rankings are based on the quality of your graduates, the number of firsts, etc. If you can increase the profile of your entry, that is, those with high points, that therefore feeds into higher first-class honours degrees, higher rankings, more money, from international students. So it's all ultimately about the rankings of the university, success of the university, and getting those high point students into your university rather than the one down the road. So even a decade ago, uh, it would have just been the achievement of getting to third level and getting to study the discipline that you wanted to and getting a good degree and maybe yeah. going on for, if you wanted to. Are we now in danger, though, from, from what, what you're telling me? I, I'm starting to fear, are we in danger now of being in the US system where... It's less about going to college and getting a degree. It's more about the college or the university that you go to. That's actually nearly more important. Well, in, in many ways, it always has been, because if you think of real life and what actually happens in the reality of life, if you look into who's in your phone book and whose numbers you have, you may find that a lot of those people were people you ultimately met in, back in your college days. And if you look at your peer group, you would possibly find that you formed that to a large extent during your undergraduate years. So not only is the discipline important, but the people you end up spending four or five years with in your early 20s may 20 years later be key people that will help you in your own career. So ultimately, I think where you go to college has always been very important, quite apart from the discipline. You can sit at home and you can do a MOOC online for absolutely nothing, you know, with MIT or with Harvard or all of these places where these courses are used as almost tasters to draw people in. But effectively, you're not meeting anybody and you're not, be, you're not socialising with a particular group, which I believe ultimately, having reached the age I've reached, is as important for people in terms of their career progression as the actual knowledge you acquire in your lecture theatre. Now, both Philip Nolan uh, in his comments and you've also made this comment in the last few minutes have said, you know, that this area has been, it's come under the microscope before. There's been an acknowledgement that this is not the best way to go about things. There's been an acknowledgement that it's skewing things in, in, in the wrong direction. What's being done? Well, Philip issued his report last year. The recommendation, because remember, ultimately every university is independent. The minister at the time, Rory Quinn, encouraged the universities to cut the number of courses um, and to reduce this down. But ultimately, each institution is autonomous. It's under the HEA, obviously, and the HEA would be encouraging this process too. 
but ultimately it's, it's down to the academic councils of the universities to make the decision and to a large extent also the institutes of technology and they are really important here because there has been a proliferation of courses at their level as well and there is a certain reluctance on the, in the institutes of technology to reduce the numbers because if they have high points courses you know, people will, will maybe be attracted to go to an institute of technology who might otherwise not be attracted to go there because of, the, again, the public perception about the value of points. So ultimately, I don't know the extent to which the funder, i.e. the government through the HEA, can exercise any greater influence than it currently is. I mean, Manute and Philip Nolan is leading by example on this. And as I say, um, UCD, where Philip came from originally as registrar, has to... A, certain extent you know fall in line with that but there are you know seven universities throughout the country there are also you know 13 or 14 institutes of technology if we are to get the number of courses down from 1400 to maybe three or four hundred that it might be more realistic in terms of the real choices facing students i think we may need you know more pressure from the hea or from the, the new minister for education through the hea to actually say look it's been a year since this report has been launched what are you specifically doing but universities do actually cherish their autonomy. They do cherish their ability to make decisions um, on you know, their own basis of whatever they perceive to be the best interest of the university or of the discipline. And ultimately, um, you know, I wonder if marketing people are telling them that this is the way to go, are we going to have much leverage over them in trying to encourage them to reduce? Brian Mooney, I wonder myself, will we be having this conversation next year in five years and even a decade down the road? Uh, Brian Mooney, education columnist with the Irish Times, thanks for joining us on The Right Hook to talk about this this evening.